0: Okay, uh, last year, for several years, we had a wonderful woman who carried this meeting off without a hitch, Carrie Soba. And she just had her third child here about two weeks ago and decided that, that uh, she decided right after the last meeting that 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 was going to be her full-time occupation Uh, and this year uh, again we've had everything carried off without me having to do anything without a hitch and i would just like to have melissa shapiro stand up we'll get a spotlight on her She — I can't believe it, how, how she does it uh, — it, uh, it, it's just been — it's remarkable. I mean, we uh, — I just tell her the date, and from that's all the help I am, and it goes on from there. So, Melissa, thank you. OK. I think we next go to Station 10 and we will continue until 3.30, and we'll take a 15-minute break, and at 3.45 we'll convene the actual annual meeting. Station 10.
1: Hi, I'm Teresa Ligazinski. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and I have a question about Microsoft.
2: You have gotten into the tech world with buying Apple. Um, You have Mr. Gates there. I'm just wondering why you've never bought Microsoft.
0: Well, <laughs> in the in the earlier years, it's very clear. It's, the answer is stupidity. But the uh, <laughs> but it, uh, since Bill has, particularly since Bill has joined the board, but even even earlier than that, because of our friendship. It would be — it just would be a mistake for Berkshire to buy Microsoft, because if something happened a week later, a month later, in terms of them having better earnings than expected, or making an acquisition — anything, both Bill and I would incorrectly, but would be — would be a target of suggestions and accusations, perhaps even, that somehow he had told me something, or vice versa. I stay away from. I try to stay away from a few things, just totally, because uh, the the inference would be drawn that that we might have talked. I might have talked to somebody about something. So I, I've I've told the I've told the fellows that Ted and Todd, for example, that there are just a few things that are off the list. Uh, because there'd be a lot of people who wouldn't believe us if something good immediately happened after we bought it. And of course, we, to buy a lot of stock, you can take six months to buy it or something of the sort. Uh, we just don't need it. Uh, but both that and my stupidity have cost us a lot of money. <laughs> uh, it's, a very, it's a good question, and, and uh, I, think, I think the answer makes sense. But Charlie?
3: Well, it's part of theology that a late conversion is better than ever. And you greatly improved yourself.
0: (laughs) Becky. (laughs) All
4: right, this question comes from Dave Shane. He says, Warren, you are a big believer in the U.S. political system, the financial system, and in every American. You've said that regardless of who is president, the economy and the U.S. consumer will continue to prosper over the long run. All that said, do you believe that people in this country are more divided today than 50 years ago, or is it just social media and media in general that blows this divine out of proportion? And if you do believe the divide has grown, what words of wisdom do you have to possibly help remedy it?
0: Now, I would say this multiple times in my life. People have felt the country was more divided than ever, and i've gone through periods where people I knew and admired thought that because the other party was in in uh, power that the that there never would be another election that the constitution would have i've heard everything now the interesting thing is this paper from 1942 since then there have been 14 american presidents just since my young venture into the stock market at 11 uh, i've lived under 14 of the 44 presidents the united states has had now, now they call Trump 45, but they count Grover Cleveland twice. So there's really only been 44 presidents of the United States, and 14 of the 44 have been during this period when that $10,000 became 51 million. Seven have been Republicans. Seven have been Democrats. One has been assassinated. One has resigned under pressure. Uh, it works, you know. It. it it, if you if you'd told me at the start, you know that, that you'd have a Cuban Missile Crisis and you'd have you'd have nuclear weapons and you'd have a panic, in 2000 financial panic and you would have many recessions and you'd have war in the streets in the late 60s from a divided country, you'd say, why the hell are you buying stocks? And through it all, you know America in fits and starts, but America really really moves ahead, and uh, uh, we are always — we survived a civil war, I mean, I hate to think of having to do it that way, but this country, in only less than three of my lifetimes — if you go back three of my lifetimes, uh, you go back 263 years, I guess, and uh, Thomas Jefferson is 12 years old. And that's just, re- and there was nothing here. It, you know, you've flown in from all over to Omaha today, and you flew over a country with more than 75 million owner-occupied homes and 260 million vehicles and the great universities and medical systems and, and everything. And it's all, it's all a net gain in less than three of my lifetimes. So, and we've had these events Uh, since, since I started buying my first stock, this country really, really works. And it, and it always will have lots of disagreements, and after every election you'll have people feeling the world is coming to an end and, you know, how could this happen? And I remember my future father-in-law in 1952, he wanted to have a talk with me before uh, his daughter and I got married. So kind of reluctantly I sat down with him and he, he said, Warren, he said, there's just one thing I want to tell you. He said, You're gonna fail. Uh, he said, you know, the Democrats are gonna get in you know, they're gonna take over the country and you're gonna fail, but don't feel responsible for it because it's not your fault. I mean he wanted to absolve me from this feeling that while his daughter was starving to death it was my fault. And and I kept buying stocks and doing a little bit better all the time, and, but, and if the Republicans were in, it was okay, and it was because of them that I was doing well, and if it, they were out, forget it, it was all going to disappear. So I've, been, I've seen a lot of American public opinion over the years. I've seen a lot of media commentary. I've seen the headlines. And when you get all through with it, this country has six times the per capita GDP growth uh the gdp per capita that it had when i was born one person's lifetime six for one change everybody in this room essentially is living better in multiple ways than john d rockefeller senior was who was the richest person you know in the world uh during my early years and and we're all living better than, than he could live so this is a remarkable remarkable uh, country and we found something very special. Okay. I would love also, to be a, I would love to be a baby being born in the United States today, Charlie. okay, Charlie, you give the other side of this. Well, <laughs> <laughs>
3: There's a tendency to think that our present politicians are much worse than any we had in the past. We tend to forget how awful our politicians were in the past. I can — I can remember a prominent senator arguing with an absolute earnestness that mediocre people ought to have more representation on the United States Supreme Court.
0: Yeah. He came from Nebraska, incidentally. He did. He came from
3: Nebraska. So uh, we're not quite as bad as that yet. Yeah.
0: He succeeded my dad in the House of Representatives. Okay. <laughs> Gary.
5: Yes, on reinsurance, um, I know we've talked in the past about reinsurance not really being as attractive an industry in, say, the next 10 years as the last 10. But I don't think we've talked specifically about general re. And I looked this morning at the 10Q, and I see General Re has grown nicely. I know there's been some changes in the in the management. And I wondered if you could just give us a sense of what's going on at the company to bring about some of that growth and, and what looks like improvement.
0: Yeah, well, the reinsurance business, I don't I don't think I'd say that it's tougher than it was 10 years ago, but it, if we go back to 40 or 50 years ago, uh, it was... It was not brutally competitive, I'll put it that way. Uh, um, and at Genry, uh, uh, Tad Mantras, who did a fantastic job for us at Genry, retired. And, and uh, we have, uh, under Ajit, and then Kara in addition, but under Ajit, the, uh, the focus of the place has changed somewhat, and it probably it probably is more growth-oriented uh, than before, but I can assure you that anything associated with Ajit is also has underwriting discipline attached to it. But I, uh, there has, as you've correctly noticed, there's been some pickup. And uh, uh, I, think, I think actually we'll see the property casualty reinsurance business grow a fair amount. And the life business, reinsurance business, and this is really the only place we do much in life, but that has grown very substantially ever since we took it over, uh, particularly and in, particularly internationally. And so that that part I like, and, and uh, uh, we will have a somewhat, I think we'll have a somewhat larger operation at Gen Re, but we have we have various methods, as you know, of being in reinsurance. We do these huge bulk deals. That's why our net revenues are down this year. We did that $10 billion deal with AIG, which was the biggest deal in history uh, last year, and we don't have a repeat of it this year. We will be in the reinsurance business five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and 50 years from now, in my view, and we will have some unusual advantages that stem both from our capital position, our attitude toward the business, and the talent that we have. We have we have an a way better than average insurance business generally we have some real gems that nobody really knows much about and we have a very very good reinsurance business that will be subject to more ups and downs than something like geico will be which just moves ahead every year Um, but it, it will be an important part of berkshire charlie
3: yeah. I, I would argue the part that any idiot financier can easily get into has gotten way tougher. And, and why wouldn't it?
0: Charlie is my substitute for my father-in-law that was. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Station Eleven.
6: Hey Warren, Charlie. Thank you again for having us and, and having me. Uh, I just can't thank you guys enough and appreciate you guys enough for the body of work that you guys have delivered to us and the uh, exemplar example that you guys have set with your principles. Thank you, Charlie. You mentioned that. Charlie, you've mentioned that if given the chance or the same chance with a smaller capital base, you would still look for mispriced stock opportunities. Of uh, course. <laughs> Uh, and that would be determined through, obviously, what, what we call the, uh, the intrinsic value of the organiza- or the, the company in question, an aggregate of the discounted future cash flows. Would you work the arithmetic using a fictional data set to illustrate the mathematical principia uh, to determine an intrinsic value? Um, and I would hope you include the comprehensive metal, uh, mental model of the key metrics considered, any quali- uh, qualitative assessments of the management, and any assumptions of its industry to determine the durability of its earning power. Uh, and Warren, uh, same, same to that effect, would you also demonstrate or illustrate a, uh, an arithmetic uh, problem set using with a significant capital base, and provide the object lessons on how those have changed from a small to a large capital base?
3: Well, I can't give you a formulaic approach, because I don't use one, and I just mix all I just mix all the factors and and if the gap between value and and price is not attractive I go on to something else. And sometimes it's just quantitative. For instance, when Costco was selling at about 12 or 13 times earnings. I thought that was a ridiculously low value just because the competitive strength of the business was so great, and it was so likely to keep doing better and better. But I can't reduce that to a formula for you. Uh, I liked the cheap real estate. I liked the competitive position. I liked the, the way the personnel system. Where I, I liked everything about it, and I thought, even though it's three times book or whatever it was then, uh, that it, it, it's worth more. But that's not a formula that anybody. If you want a formula, you should go back to graduate school. They'll they'll give you lots of formulas that won't work.
0: This is the longest we've ever gone in the Berkshire meeting without Charlie saying that getting to the point where he prefers Costco to Berkshire. (laughs) Okay, Andrew.
7: We got a handful of questions relating to Apple. This is a a bit of a mashup of a couple of them. Uh, Warren, you have bought in, in and sold out of IBM. You have praised Jeff Bezos, but never bought Amazon. And you have doubled down on Apple. Can you tell us what it is about Apple? And given your sometimes critical views on buybacks, do you think Apple would do better spending $100 billion on buybacks or buying other productive businesses the way you have generally preferred? $100 billion is a lot of money.
0: I used to think so. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Apple has a incredible consumer product, which you understand a lot better than I do. Um, whether they should buy in their shares, they shouldn't buy in their shares at all unless they think that they're selling for less than their their worth. Uh, and if they are selling for less than their worth, and they have the money, and they don't see an acquisition that's even more attractive, they should buy in their shares. And I think that that's very — because I think it's extremely hard to find acquisitions that would be accretive. A to apple that would be in the 50 or 100 billion or 200 billion dollar range uh they do a lot of small acquisitions uh and you know i'm delighted to see them repurchasing shares we own let's say we own 250 million or so shares they have i think 4 billion 923 million or something like that if you uh and Mentally, you can say we own 5% of it, but I figure, you know, with the passage of a little time, we may own 6 or 7% simply because they repurchase shares, and I find that if you got an extraordinary product and ecosystem and there's lots to be done, I love the idea of having our 5% or whatever it may be grow to 6 or 7% without us laying out a dime. I mean, it, uh, it's worked for us in many other situations. Uh, but you have to have some very, very, very special product, and uh, uh, which has uh, an, an enormous, wide, enormously widespread ecosystem, and the product's extremely stable. And they're not going to find 50 or 100 billion dollar acquisitions that they can make it remotely a sensible price that really uh, become additive to that and they may they may find it who knows but there certainly as I look around the horizon, I don't see anything that would make a lot of sense for them uh, in terms of what they'd have to pay and what they would get whereas I do see a business that they know everything about and where they uh, uh may or may not uh be able to buy it at an attractive price when they repurchase their shares that remains to be seen incidentally that's one thing that i always enjoy people people say well you're talking your book or something if you talk from our standpoint we would love to see apple go down in price uh, I, uh, I, it, it, they're going to well just put it this way if andrew and Charlie and I were partners in a business that was worth three million dollars, so each of us had a million-dollar interest in it. If Andrew offered to sell out his one-third interest at eight hundred thousand, and we had the money around, we'd jump at the chance to buy him out. I mean, it's so simple, but people get all lost. And if he wanted a million two for it, we wouldn't pay it to him. <laughs> it's it's very simple math, but it gets lost in all these discussions. And of course. Uh, like I say, Tim Cook can do simple math, and he would probably do very complicated math too. So we we very much approve of them repurchasing shares. Charlie,
3: I think generally speaking, in America, when companies go out hell bent to buy other companies, they do they're worth less after the transaction is made than they were before. So I don't think you have a general weight of wealth for American corporations to go out and buy other corporations. Averaged out, it's a way down, not up, and I think that a great many places have nothing better to do than to buy in their own stock, and nothing as advantageous to do as they can uh, as buying in their own stock. So I think we know pretty damn well what's going to happen to Apple. They'd be very lucky to, if there was something available at a low price that they could buy. It's I don't think the world's that easy. I think that. THE REASON THESE COMPANIES ARE BUYING THEIR STOCK IS thats is THAT THEY'RE SMART ENOUGH TO KNOW THAT IT'S BETTER FOR THEM THAN ANYTHING ELSE.
0: That, THAT DOES NOT MEAN WE APPROVE OF EVERY BUYBACK AT ALL, THOUGH. I MEAN, WE'VE SEEN… NO, NO, NO. Yeah. I THINK
3: SOME PEOPLE JUST BUY IT TO KEEP THE STOCK UP. AND THAT, OF COURSE, IS INSANE AND IMMORAL. BUT APART FROM THAT, IT'S FINE.
0: <laughs> OKAY, GREG. <laughs>
8: Warren, if we look at the performance of your equity investment portfolio the last three to five years, some of the strongest performances come from Visa and MasterCard, which put up returns that were three to four times greater than American Express. Unfortunately, your holdings of the two names, which we assume were held by Todd or Ted, have accounted for less than 1 percent of stock holdings on a combined basis the past five years, while American <laughs> Express has tended to be a top five holding, accounting for 10 percent of the portfolio on average and closer to 8 percent of late. Given that all three firms benefit from powerful network effects along with valuable brands, were there any particular reasons Berkshire (laughs) did not ramp up its stakes in Visa and MasterCard to more meaningful levels, especially during those years when American Express was struggling? After all, you've shown a willingness to own several stocks from the same industry, holding shares in several competing banks and buying stakes in all four domestic airlines in fairly equal amounts when you picked them up in late
0: 2016. Ted and Todd, or either one of them, I won't get into which specifically, which one of them specifically uh, bought, or for that matter, they could both have bought decent master charge. Uh, They were significant portions of their portfolio, and there was no embargo or anything uh, on them owning those stocks because we had a big investment in American Express, and I could have bought them as well, and looking back, I should have. On the other hand i think american express uh has done a fabulous <laughs> job and now we own uh 17 and a large fraction percent of a company that not that long ago we may have owned 12 percent we've done it without spending time and without you know it's, it's a company that 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 has really done a fantastic job in a very competitive field where lots of people would love to take their customers away from them, but they have more customers than ever, and they're spending more money than ever uh, the customers are. And the foreign, the international growth has accelerated, the small business penetration is terrific. It's really quite a business. And, you know, we love the fact we own it. Like I said, it didn't preclude me in any way from buying Master Charger and Visa, and if I'd been as smart as Ted and Todd, I would have. <laughs> Charlie?
3: Well, we would have been a, a lot better in all of our stock picking if we could do it in retrospect. But, but at the time, we have a big position in American Express, and there is one tiny cloud on the horizon of the payments processors, and and that, that is the system of WeChat in China, and so it isn't as though there isn't a little cloud somewhere off in the. And I don't have the faintest idea how important that cloud is,
0: and I don't think Warren does either. No. No, payments payments are a huge deal worldwide, and you've got all kinds of smart people working in various ways to change the payment arrangements. To and,
3: destroy the, what we have
0: now. Sure, sure. And you've got some very smart people that, that you know, I am... That, that are, building a company. And American Express made a decision a few years ago uh, not to uh, bid as low as somebody else did to retain the Costco business. And I think Charlie and I disagree on this, but I think it was a smart decision. He doesn't think it was a smart decision. But one of us will be right, and and one of us will remind you that they were right. if you look at the American Express, it is, it's a remarkable company. I mean, you know, they came after them with Sapphire last year. People want that business, and payments are changing. And you can see in different countries different different ways things are going on. In that. And, and there are a lot of people that will play the game of gaming the system and switch from one to another based on the rewards on this card or that and all of that sort of thing. But there also is a, I think there's a very substantial uh group for which American Express does something very special and uh, and they keep capitalizing on that premier position with that group uh, and they and they're doing it successfully around the country and you'll see in the first quarter you've seen in the first quarter you know we're in in Britain and Mexico and Japan you're seeing gains of fifteen percent or better in local currencies and the base is not, it's not tiny it was not huge so there's a lot of room left to go in that and and the small business penetration is good the loan portfolios behave sensationally uh compared to uh really just about anybody so i like very much our holdings of american express the first half because of the accounting changes they had to uh suspend their repurchase program for six months but i, I they've announced that they expect to renew it and Someday we'll even, you know, we'll own a greater percentage of American Express, and it'll be a bigger company, in my opinion, and I think we'll do very well. But as Charlie says, nobody knows how payments is for sure comes out, and, and nobody knows how autos for sure come out. And there, That is true of a great many businesses we're in, and we've faced it before. We used to buy things that were certain failures, like textiles and second-rate department stores and trading stamps in California. Now we just face things that face real difficulty. So we're actually moving up the the ladder. <laughs> OK, Station One.
9: Mr. Buffett, my name is Daphne Calier Starr. I'm eight years old and live in New York City. I've been a shareholder for two years, and this is my second annual shareholders meeting. Berkshire Hathaway's best investments on which the company built its reputation have been in very capital efficient businesses such as Coke, C's Candy, American Express, and Geico. But recently Berkshire has made really big investments in a few businesses that require huge capital investments to maintain and that offer only a regulated low rate of return, such as Burlington Northern Railroad. My question to you, Mr. Buffett, is could you please explain why Berkshire's largest recent investments have been departed from your old capital efficient philosophy? And why specifically have you invested Burlington Northern instead of buying A capital efficient company like American Express.
0: You're killing me, Daphne. (laughs) Yeah,
3: I'm certainly glad she's not nine years old.
0: Yeah. I'm just sitting here thinking which of the six panelists we're going to bump next year and put you in. (laughs) Uh, Well, I thought I was doing well when I bought that city service at 11. (laughs) The the answer is that we have — we'd love — we always prefer the businesses that earned terrific returns on capital. Like a seized candy when we bought it, or a good many of the businesses, and and we've and we've and uh, you know American Express, you know, earns a, a a terrific return on equity and has for a very long time. Uh, uh, the fact that that we buy a Burlington a BNSF Burlington Northern uh, uh, means that essentially we can't get more money deployed in capital light businesses businesses uh at prices that make sense to us and so we have gone into more capital intensive businesses that are good businesses but wouldn't it be wonderful if we could run the the railroad without you know without trains and track and tunnels and bridges and a few things uh we get a decent return on the capital intensive businesses uh, we we bought most of them at, at, at very decent prices, and they've been run very well since we've we bought them. Uh, we still love a business that takes very little capital and earns high returns and continues to grow and requires very little incremental capital. We can't deploy as much money as we have in doing that, and so is the second best choice still a good choice? The answer is yes. It's not as good as the best choice. Charlie yes I
3: I like the aspiration of that young lady she basically wants a royalty on the other fellows sales and of course that's a very good model and if everybody could do that why nobody would do anything else the, the reason we're satisfied with our utility returns and our railroad returns is they're quite satisfactory and we and the quite satisfactory i wish we had two more just like them don't you warren yeah they, so, definitely so the answer is they're good enough and you're, you're asking us to get perfection if you want us to have all our money in coke and say five uh, percent of what it's now selling for
0: yeah and a business like <clears throat> apple really doesn't take much capital but uh, uh so you've got to spend a lot of money to buy businesses like that, very few are for sale. And, and uh, the answer is we have not foregone any opportunity to buy uh, businesses that earn high returns, very high returns on equity capital, or when we could buy them at a sensible price, to buy these other businesses. So they haven't shoved anything else off the table. But you, are, you definitely have a job in our capital allocation department. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Carol.
1: This question is from Max Taylor of Chicago, and it concerns the newspapers that Berkshire owns. In your 2012, you had a section devoted to Berkshires buying 28 newspapers during the year just passed. Since then, you have not come back to the newspaper subject. But this year, at the end of the annual report, you published a list of the newspapers Berkshire owns today, along with their circulation. I compared that list with the one you published five years ago, at the end of uh, 2012. As you no doubt know better than anyone, the circulation of the 26 newspapers that Berkshire still owns, of the 28 originally bought, fell sharply, in many cases by big amounts, like 30 percent to almost 50 percent. I know that five years ago you acknowledged the risk in owning newspapers, but you still said, Charlie and I believe that papers delivering comprehensive and reliable information to tightly bound communities and having a sensible Internet strategy will remain viable for a long time. Skip to today and imagine that you are writing about Berkshire's experience with newspapers. What would you be saying?
0: Yeah. I would say that… I forget the modifying word on internet strategy, but uh, uh, I guess I said sensible. Uh, The 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 problem has been about 1,300 daily newspapers in the United States. There were 1,700 not that long ago. Is that no one except the Wall Street Journal the new york times and now probably the washington post has come up with a digital product that really in any really significant way will replace the the revenue that is being lost as as print newspapers lose both circulation and advertising and if you look at the communities in which we operate or the communities in which you name it, uh, other other newspapers operate. The, the community could be prospering. We're in a prosperous uh, economy presently, uh, and all are losing daily circulation. They're losing Sunday circulation. They're using street, what's called street, circula- uh, street sales. They're losing home delivered. And it is, a, I've been surprised uh that the rate of decline has not moderated uh in the last five years we we bought all the papers at reasonable prices so it's it is not a great economic consequence to berkshire but i would like to see daily newspapers uh actually you know be economically viable because of the importance to society but i would say that the, the trends which i put those circulation figures in there because i think uh, shareholders entitled to look year to year uh at at what is happening and it's not only it's happening to 1300 newspapers throughout the united states and it happens in small towns where you would think that the alternative sources of information would not be that good it happens uh, it happens every place and uh uh the journal the times and probably the post have a viable uh economic model in in the digital world and probably will continue to shrink i'm almost certain will continue to shrink in the print world but the digital world will be big enough that uh and they'll be successful enough so that they have, in my view, a sustainable business model. But it is very difficult uh, to see, with a lack of success in terms of important dollars arising from digital, it's it's, it's difficult to see how the how the print product uh, uh, survives over time. And that's I'm afraid that's true of 1,300 papers in this country. And, uh, uh, we'll keep looking to see if there is a way to do it, but but you'd have to look at our experience and, and look at the experience of everyone else. As McClatchy newspapers came out the other day, you know, and I think the newspaper, which is very good, you know, fine cities that they operate in, and advertising revenues down something like 17 or 18 percent circulation. But it isn't that just them; it's it's everybody in the business. And I I wish I had a better answer for you, but the but I don't. I would say that the economic significance to berkshire is, is is almost negligible but but the significance to the society i think actually is is enormous and uh, you know i hope uh, i hope that we find something i hope others find something because we'll copy it but so far we have not succeeded in that charlie
3: well the decline was faster than we thought it was going to be so it was not our finest bit of economic prediction and I think it's even worse I think to the extent we miscalculated we may have done it because we both love newspapers and are and have considered them so important in our country these little local newspaper monopolies tended to be owned by people who behaved well and tended to control the politicians and we're going to miss these newspapers if they disappear we're going to miss them terribly, and and I think I you hope God it doesn't happen. But
0: uh, yeah. the figures are not good, Warren. No, no, they aren't, and and it isn't just you know it isn't some town that has a particular problem with unemployment or anything of the sort, and it isn't due to general economic conditions. It's uh, uh, it's due to the fact that in this paper, if you wanted to know the baseball results from the present day and the box scores and everything else, they told you the following morning and it was still news to you. And the financial material that I read from there in terms of looking at the stock prices and everything, they were news to you the following morning. And the what was developing in the Pacific in terms of the war was news to you when you read about it in the morning in The New York Times. And it's, news is what you don't know that you want to know. And the and those help wanted ads you know segregated as they may have been uh still were the place to go to look to find a job and you can go up and down the line and one element after another where the daily print newspaper was primary uh uh they're no longer primary and um the the business has changed in a very material way and we've had been able to figure out any solutions to that, and we'll keep trying. And like I say, it's, it's not of economic consequence, but, but I think it is a societal consequence, and, and uh, we haven't been able to solve it.
10: Okay, Jonathan. TTI has been a nice growth story since Berkshire acquired it 11 years ago, more than doubling its pre-tax earnings to about $400 million due to fine organic growth and at least two successful bolt-on acquisitions. Business momentum appeared to accelerate in the first quarter. Can you please talk about the competitive landscape in the electronic components distribution industry and what TTI's advantages are? Is is it just a great industry to be in, or is TTI's business model and or management team special? Do you expect it to be, continue to be, one of Berkshire's faster-growing non-insurance subsidiaries?
0: TTI is run by a fellow named Paul Andrews, who's done an absolutely sensational job with us he's a wonderful man he's a wonderful manager and in the last he's he's quadrupled the business basically but in the last year and accelerating right to this point uh they distribute little electronic components they actually their average they're they're many billion dollar business and their average Item is less than less than a nickel that they sell, so it's kind of like being in the jelly bean business or something like that. Except these things go into all kinds of fancy machines that I don't understand. And uh, we 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 have a worldwide operation based in in the uh, Dallas Fort Worth area, and built by one man who left a division of General Dynamics know, 45 or 50 years ago and step-by-step step build up this business. Like, we just bought, within the last two months, we bought an operation in South Korea that will uh, be another substantial addition. We do business worldwide. And electronic components have absolutely taken off in the last year. and. They use something called uh, the bill, you know, the—well, the, it's, it's essentially a measure of backlog, and, and book-to-build is the ratio, they call it, but it's just kind of a special term. Uh, the, but it's grow, i mean, it's just improved dramatically in in the last year, and it continues month after month. So something is going on out there, because nobody buys these things. To store them in their basement or anything of the sort. I mean, these get used; these electronic components. Some of them are on on allocation. We have a great relationship with suppliers. We have a very good relationship with with our customers because we carry uh, we carry more inventory than most of our competitors. So, particularly when when uh, the business is tight, we we can deliver. Uh, and, and And do a very first class job doing it, so I give great credit to paul end he, he 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 increased his physical facility started on that a few years ago and and it 's a godsend that he did it because with the business going through there now we we we, we wouldn't have been able to handle it uh, but it's a competitive business i mean if you look at Arrow <clears throat> Electronics, on you know on the near stock exchange and uh, we've got competitors. I think Paul is doing a better job by a considerable margin uh, than they are, and I'm delighted it's part of the Berkshire family. There will be times when that business slows down because their 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 customers uh, you know will will have their own cycles and when it does will go down. But over time that business is gonna grow. Charlie?
3: yeah it's a wonderful business because it's so difficult to do that competitors don't want to try it when i lived in omaha there was a man who lived in great prosperity and almost no work and his business was gathering up and rendering dead horses and he never had any competitors (laughs) he used to come up to the omaha club and start drinking about 11 in the morning it was not a difficult business but nobody ever crowded it in with new competition, and very few people want to distribute zillions of electronic parts that are worth a nickel each. It's very complicated. And of course, that business is terribly good at it, and it keeps getting more and more of the same. So you're right, it's a huge growth business, which is sort of the electronic equivalent of gathering up and rendering dead horses.
9: Imagine
0: keeping track of close to a million different items, you know, with very small values attached to them, and getting them out to your customer fast because they want them fast, all over the world. You know, and, and those things are not easy to manage. I mean, I, I, uh, and
3: staying in stock yeah. on so many items, it's it's very complicated, and that business is very good at it. Yeah, we're long- and of course it'll grow. The horses went away, but these parts aren't going to go away.
0: Charlie made a made a uh, profession of stunning businesses where the owners could sit around and drink all day and have them. <laughs> you know, that was where we ought to be competing, but uh, or buying.
3: My theory, Warren, is if it, if it can't stand a little mismanagement, it's no business. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and we're testing that sometimes. <laughs> okay, station two.
5: Hi, Ben to Topeka, Kansas. Uh, just want to say, Warren and Charlie, thank you again for hosting us all. This is a great event. Thank you. Uh, my question is about the recent decision to sell shares back of Phillips 66. Not to put you on the hot seat, but right after that, share prices jumped up about 22 dollars a share. You you mentioned at the time that there's some regulatory requirements if you own over 10% of a company. Could you talk about the factors that go into how you decide whether to retain more than that or get under that threshold? And then what are your thoughts long term on Phillips 66, like their business mid, midstream refining? Yeah.
0: Well, it was the city service preferred of last year. They, uh, we sold the stock at around 93 or 4 and, and probably 115 now. But we we own just under 10 percent of the company. And and the more Ted and Todd and I uh think about various problems connected with regulatory problems and trading problems and so on, overwhelmingly we will we will stick below 10 percent on marketable security holdings. Uh, we've done it with the airlines. Uh, now that does not mean we're going to reduce our holdings in American Express or of the sort. But and Greg Garland has done a great job at Phillips 66. We've had we've had very good re- relations with the company. They've, uh, they're very he's a very 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 experienced and sensible manager. But I did decide that. I wanted to be below ten percent in that holding, and we like i say we will will stay just slightly under ten percent of wells fargo we 've actually sold a few shares uh, just to stay below ten percent in the case I think of both American Airlines and United continental we we unless there's something unusual we 're going to stay under ten but we we have uh, we have nine and a significant fraction percent of phillips and uh, I think they've been good at operations. I think they've been good at capital allocation. Uh, we traded them a business. We traded them stock for a business uh, some years ago, uh, which has been a very nice business that we've retained an operation. Uh, so uh, we've got we've got a lot of money still in Phillips, and I wish I'd made the deal at a higher price and. Uh, but we made money on what we sold and we accomplished an objective charlie
3: well we like the subsidiary we traded the stock for
0: i missed that but
3: uh we traded the stock for a subsidiary yeah yeah well we yeah. like the subsidiary
0: oh yeah well it it's like
3: the stock went away for nothing
0: yeah yeah actually we've done pretty well with phillips uh becky
4: Uh, this question comes from Vlad Koptev in Ukraine. He says, Capitalization of cryptocurrencies approached that of Berkshire and Apple last year. And clearly, the idea behind crypto will affect conventional banking groups where Berkshire is a shareholder. You always say you didn't go into too much detail to obtain an understanding on cryptocurrencies. So, what factors caused you to say that it's a bubble?
0: Well, generally, non productive assets. <clears throat> remain. You know, if you had bought gold at the time of Christ and you figure the compound rate on it, you know, it's, it may be a couple tenths of 1 uh, percent, it, it, it essentially is not going to deliver anything other than supposed scarcity, you know, because they'll only… You can only mine so many but so what i mean what is what does it produce itself Uh, you know the check is a wonderful idea just imagine how the world would be without being able to write checks or have wire transfer of funds but it doesn't make the check intrinsically itself worth a lot of money and if you said you can't use something called check with a little piece of paper you'd do something else to transfer money i i think that anytime you buy a non-productive asset uh, you are counting on somebody else later on to buy a non-productive asset because they think they can sell it to somebody f- for more money. And it's been tried with tulips, and it's been, tri- it's been tried with various things over time, and it does come to a bad ending. I mean, having, you have a hard time. You can, you can think, of, think of raw land. I mean, the Louisiana Purchase was, say, $15 million for 800,000 or so square miles. In fact, you're sitting on land that came with the Louisiana Purchase, and and uh, so what we paid, we paid 20 bucks a, a square mile, and uh, you know 640 acres in a square mile, and you're down to three cents a, or something. So that was a pretty good purchase of an, what was then a non-productive property. But it, it depended — But it's very hard. You can buy. St- stamps, Bill Gross got every, you know, collected a wonderful stamp collection and it sold for more money in the end. But it's dependent on somebody else wanting to buy, hoping they will sell it for more money and so on. And in the end, you make your money out of productive assets. If you buy a farm, you you to make what the crops, what amount per acre of soybeans or corn or whatever may. Be raised and how much you have to pay the farmer that farms it for you and what your taxes will be and various things and you make a conclusion based on what the asset itself will produce over time and that's an investment when you buy something because you're hoping tomorrow morning you're going to wake up you know and the price will be higher you know you need more people coming in do it than are leaving and and they uh, and you can get that and it will feed on itself for a while and sometimes for a long while and sometimes to extraordinary numbers. But in the end, but they come to bad endings and cryptocurrencies will come to bad endings. And along with the fact that there's nothing being produced in the way of value from the asset, that that, uh, you also have the problem that it draws in a lot of charlatans and that sort of thing who are trying to create various sorts of exchanges or whatever it may be. It, you know, it's something where Where people who are of less than stellar character see an opportunity to uh, clip people who are trying to get rich because their neighbor's getting rich buying this stuff that neither one of them understands. It will come to a bad ending. Charlie?
3: Well, I like cryptocurrencies a lot less than you do. (laughs) 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 And so, to me, it's just dementia. And I think the people who are professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it's it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out.
0: (laughs) To the extent that this — we're being webcast around the world, I hope some of our stuff doesn't translate very well, actually. (laughs) Okay, Gary.
5: Yes, I had a question on the corporate tax rate, and we have a debate in my investment world about where the benefits of that cut fall. And it, I'd say the consensus is going to the consumer as it gets competed away over time, but perhaps it, some of it sticks to shareholders. And my, my question is, do you think over the long run some of the benefits sticks to shareholders, and maybe it's even beyond auto insurance. Maybe it's other businesses you have as well. I, Well, what
0: people do generally with that is they take what they want to be the answer for them, and then they hire, or they, or they just attach themselves to some economist that gives them a more complicated way of saying it's all going to be wonderful because it, it's happened. But the answer is that in the case of our regulated public utilities, the benefits are all supposed to go and will go to the utility customer because we're entitled to a return on equity if we perform well, and, and we're not entitled to get excess returns because uh, our tax rates change. that. So, and, and similarly, if tax rates would go back up, we would expect to get compensated for that. It, uh, so in that area, and that was 5 or $6 billion for us. But in that area, absolutely goes uh, to the user, the consumer. And it should. Uh, then the question is, with the remainder, does it get competed away or not? And the answer is, sometimes it does. Sometimes it gets competed very quickly and substantially. Sometimes it may be slow. And other times, I'd, it probably won't. The one thing you know is that the, the change the corporate tax law was good uh, for shareholders generally and, and, and Berkshire shareholders. I mean, it, uh, and that's, that's what Congress passed. And, and the intent had to be that if you were going to cut taxes, that, that uh, shareholders would get a, a particularly large portion this time. And some of you will agree with that. Uh, politically, and some of you won 't agree with it politically, but you 'll all benefit <laughs> and uh, uh, I think it's, I think it 's uh, it's human nature uh, if you 're getting a break to say it 's going to work wonderfully for everybody else, and we 'll find out whether it will or not it 's very, very, very difficult in economics to measure the impact of single variables. You cannot just do one thing in economics. People kind of learn that in physics and talk about butterflies in China and all that sort of thing. But the, in, every question you get in economics, the next, you should, or any statement, you should say, and then what? And when you get into the and then what's, you start favoring people who give an answer to that in, in, in political life. That happens to usually help you in some way or another, including your pocketbook. And, and we've seen that with this, and it's helped the shareholders Berkshire out of Berkshire Hathaway. I would say that, that some will be competed away, some by the law utilities, and, and some will benefit Berkshire shareholders. Charlie? I have nothing to add. <clears throat> OK. Station 3.
11: Hi, Mr. Buffett and uh, Mr. Monger. My name is Kevin, and I'm from Shenzhen, China. Currently studying finance and philosophy at Boston College. I have a rather broad question. Uh, in this more and more globalized world, what do you think our younger generation can do to best leverage our background and experience of both China and U.S. to create values and further benefit two countries' in co- economy and relationship? And what do you think? What do you see valuable in a person? In a person with a with a multicultural background. Thank you.
0: Well, I think in answer to the last question, I think it's terrific to have a multicultural background. And if I, I never was any good at languages, but if, if I were in college today, and in either country, I'd be learning the language of of the other country because it, <clears throat> I think it'll be a great great advantage over time. Um, the First part of the question, uh, uh, I'd like to have that stated again to me. I want to make sure I'm answering your specific aspect on the — I think it's going to be good for your future, but I'm, I'm — can we have the microphone on up there again?
11: So, uh, my fir- the first part of the question is, like, what do you think our younger generation Can do to best leverage our background and experience of both China and US?
0: Well, I'd start with being multilingual. I mean, certainly, in terms of, you know, I mean, obviously, you want to be able to express yourself in both. And the the better you can understand, obviously, the culture of another society, uh, obviously, that's a benefit. uh, But uh, I think. I think the market system, modified as it may be both in China and in the United States, the way it really does, there, there will be an invisible hand to some extent that does work to improve the lot of future generations by the fact that both China and the United States and, and, and the rest of the world is improving. I mean, it is much better. In my view particularly in a nuclear world but it's much better to have people prospering prospering throughout the world partly through their own efforts but partly through their interactions with the rest of the world and we've made a lot of progress in that respect uh, particularly since world war ii i mean it was a, a terrific idea to have the marshall plan you know instead of behaving like we did after world war one and getting the result that we got uh, i think we made we much more intelligently after world war ii uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm bullish on the future of the United States, but I'm bullish on the future of, of China and, 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 and to a significant extent, you know, the rest of the world. Uh, people are going to be living better 10, 20, 50 years from now, and uh, I don't think that's something that can be stopped, even. Charlie, absent weapons of mass destruction.
3: Yeah, well, the multicultural stuff, it, it wouldn't do you... Much good to be fluent in both English and Chinese. If you were, say, a proctologist in China or a proctologist in Nebraska, you just so if you're going to use your multicultural background, you've got to work at some interface between between uh, the United States and China, and you can raise money in China in the United States and invest it in China, like Li Lu does, or you can be some kind of an importer or or uh, a a trade specialist but you got to get near that interface to benefit from bilingual and so
0: on but you would bet that the interface will be substantially greater huge yeah huge and that's what you want to prepare for
3: yes and and i think that generally speaking when you get multicultural, you can also be multidisciplinary. But generally, I think people make more money if they're, if they're very narrowly specialized, like the proctologist. And that, and that it's much harder to make a, a lot of money for most people if you try and imitate
7: Warren and me.
0: I'm glad I didn't meet him earlier. I mean. <laughs> OK, Andrew.
7: Okay, this question comes from someone who says, I am a Berkshire employee and shareholder. Mm -hmm. I read an investigative article from ProPublica on the Washington Post that many of Berkshire's various units only offer 401 plans with high fees that are actively managed rather than the low-cost indexes you have advocated as the best path for savings for retirement. The article's author said he contacted the company and nobody would comment. Will you do something to improve our 401 K offerings to match your investment philosophy? And from an operational perspective, how did this happen, given your strong views on the topic?
0: Well, I've absolutely said what many, many times through annual reports, and our managers know what I think about the attractiveness of having an uh, a index fund option, but they all have different plans, different histories, and they run their businesses. And who knows, you know, which particular — if you go back to the older businesses, they have defined benefit pension plans generally. Nobody puts them in any anymore. Then the question is, you know, do you transition to something else? In the end, we overwhelmingly let our managers make those kind of decisions and others, and my guess is that a very high Significant percentage of people who have work at a company that has a 401k plan will have an index fund option, but they may not in some cases. The only thing we I think we have asked the companies uh, to have a limit on the percentage I think that they might put in Berkshire's stock through the 401k but uh, we don't we don 't want People whose jobs are tied to, to Berkshire—we to, uh, certainly don't want to be in the position of encouraging them to put 100 percent or something of their their savings in, in in Berkshire itself. I don't want to be in that in that position. But I don't think even there we've insisted on any company doing that. I think we've probably made that when we've been asked about it once or twice. I think we've given them that suggestion. But the managers who run the companies, the employees. If they feel and some of our companies have human relations departments if they feel that that uh they'd like different options or something like that uh, you know they, they should make those views known to the managers and some cases the managers i think will pay attention to them and others they probably won't we've got a wide variety of managers that run our businesses and and we're not going to start trying to run them from omaha charlie
3: well i think you're right that that has happened that business of the high-fee choices, because we've delegated the whole subject to the managers of the subsidiaries, and so no attention at all is being given to the employee choices at headquarters. And what you're pointing out is that a lot of the employees in the subsidiaries would do better if they indexed instead of choosing what they did choose. And my guess is you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. yeah. And if there are any people, managers in the business today, I hope we'll do a little better at, encouraging better choices.
0: Yeah, although I would we, — we wouldn't want them — we don't want them to interfere too much in, no. in directing what they uh, —— the people — it's — you know, we, we can take
3: over human relations — No, it's up but, to the managers, yeah. but, but we wouldn't object to a little different
0: viewpoint. Hmm. And we have made it very clear what we think. I mean, uh, they just — some of them don't listen to us. <laughs> OK,
8: Greg. Warren, you've noted time and again that there is a strong common culture shared across Berkshire subsidiaries, built on a commitment to honesty and integrity, a focus on the long term, and an emphasis on customer care, and that it's also critical to find cultures that mesh well with Berkshires when acquiring operating companies. In most cases, the managers that are currently running these subsidiaries are the same individuals or members of the families that originally sold their firms to Berkshire leaving them with a vested interest in the businesses they are running and a strong connection to the culture they tend to share in common with Berkshire. It seems to me that the greater challenge is in ensuring that the large publicly traded firms that have been acquired and account for a meaningful and growing amount of Berkshire's overall value stay the course. Could you comment on whether or not this is the case, and what the greatest challenge is for you and Charlie when it comes to not only maintaining Berkshire's culture, but in finding firms that would fit in well with what you've built?
0: i think the culture is very very strong um uh, and i think it gets reinforced uh frankly i think it gets reinforced by the shareholders we have i mean we have a different body of shareholders and we and we look at those shareholders i think in in a somewhat different way than a good many other companies do i mean they uh, uh, uh i think there are a fair number of public companies that wish they didn't have you know public shareholders we're happy to have public shareholders <laughs> The uh, and we like having individual shareholders, and we don't favor institutions, and we're not going to, you know, give guidance and talk, especially to them on investor calls and all that sort of thing. But we we want our con, we want it to be directly with with with, with uh, we want shareholders who are partners basically, and th- that begins with that. It goes to the directors. We have directors who are not. Uh, well, I've been on 19 boards and I've never seen another board like ours and I think it, it's terrific that we've got the people who represent in many cases lots of shares themselves they didn't get special deals they they uh, it's an, a group of owner oriented Berkshire conscious business savvy owners and we don't have anybody on the board because they're uh, a leading you know educator or whatever it may be we, we want people who who basically think about it how to run a business well for themselves and for their partners and we've got managers who fit into that culture who have chosen that culture in coming with us and sometimes we have the second or the third or fourth generation and say at the nebraska furniture mart that share that is it perfect no it's far from perfect i mean that, you don't get Everybody thinking the same way. We have people, we, we have people that are very independently minded, running a lot of businesses, and some of them have, they have different political beliefs. They have different, they have different. They see through different lenses than we do to some degree. But in terms of having a common, strong, positive culture, I don't think there's any big public company that has it any better than, than Berkshire, and I think that will continue because people opt into it to a great deal cultures get passed along you do things that are consistent with the culture so you you do what you talk about is what you do and you don't find you don't find people saying you know we're a wonderful partnership and then voting themselves you know huge options and a whole bunch of other people will say options beneath them because it they can't look like they're taking it all for themselves and arranging hmm, i read about some deal where it could pay off with many, 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 many billions of dollars the other day, we won't name names. But uh, the—we've got as good a culture as you can get, and if—I would say net, it grows stronger. We have a few people all of the time that really don't buy into it entirely. I mean, it is not 100 percent, but it's it's, as close to it. Uh, And I think it gets closer all the time as we go along and we'll keep we will quite we will try to keep behaving in a way that reinforces it and doesn't dilute it and i think that will go i think that will not only work for charlie and me but it'll work for our successors uh very well it won't be perfect charlie
3: every time i come to one of these meetings and sit in the manager's luncheon i feel more strongly at the end of the luncheon that the culture and values of Berkshire Hathaway will go on and on for a long time after the present management is gone in fact I think it'll go on after all of the present managers are gone I think we've started something here that will work well enough that it will it will last and one of the reasons it will last is it's not that damned easy to duplicate so the the one that is present is likely to just keep going and going. Think of how little direct copying of the Berkshire system there's
0: been. And but it won't it won't produce the returns it's produced in the past either. Mm-hmm.
3: No, I, I think it's gonna I think it's gonna last a long time. Mm-hmm. For well. a very simple reason. It's, It's going to deserve to last a long time. It works. It's going to work.
0: Okay. (laughs) Station four.
9: My name is Christian Marx. I'm a proud shareholder from Cologne, Germany. It is my pleasure to be here. My question relates to the Berkshire Insurance operations. When I look at the quarterly balance sheets of the last two decades, I noticed a pattern that I kindly ask you to discuss. The sum of cash plus fixed income always hovers around 100% of the amount of insurance float. Therefore, my question is, is it fair to say that from the 128 billion of consolidated cash plus fixed income as of March, 116 billion are actually needed to support the insurance operations.
0: No, I I appreciate you.
3: The answer is no. Yes. Yeah. The
0: the answer is no, but the he deserves an explanation of how this. Maybe I haven't looked at it the way he's looked at it. Uh, But we have 100. We would much rather have uh, a number closer to 20 than to have 116 and. Uh, we do not correlate uh, or, or, or uh, um, in effect, uh, measure the float and then decide how much to put in, or leave in cash and fixed income. It, it's uh, the, the fact our float keeps growing. And lately our, cat, which is by design and has been terrific for us, and our our cash and cash equivalents has grown because uh, the competition for for acquisitions has become um, much stronger as uh, both as money is piled up in uh, uh, with bu- the buyers of businesses and because debt has been so cheap and a variety of factors but i don't think those are necessarily permanent in fact i uh be reasonably sure they aren't permanent. It's just a question of when they change. We are not tying, as Charlie said, we're not we're not tying the uh, cash and cash equivalents at all. The float, the float is surprised me. The float went up two billion dollars in the first quarter, and and uh, there is no way uh, that that float can shrink a lot in any short period. It it just it structurally has been set up in such a way that. It, 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 it will not it cannot shrink and actually i think it'll grow a, a little bit for a while i mean i've always been amazed by how much it has grown we've got so much more float than any property casualty company in the world and it, it's, it's it's pretty amazing that it all came from that little building that jack Ringwalt built and picked the, the location because it was near the tennis courts <laughs> okay carol well uh, they're
3: encouraging recent developments the some of the cash has gone out recently for securities we vastly prefer over the cash and we have a a lot of cash that could be remaining that could be deployed in securities we we might like a lot better than treasury notes so stay tuned
4: yeah
0: to make it very simple in the first quarter we earned five and a From operations, we earned a little over $5 billion. Now, we only spent about our depreciation. Normally, we would spend somewhat more than that, but that's five and a fraction billion. Two billion came in net from float, so that's $7 billion that uh, basically in the first quarter that would have been added to our cash uh, if we hadn't done something with it. And and, uh, instead, our cash and equivalents went down because we we net invested more in equities by some margin than the seven that came in. But we do have this position where, even absent a change in float, about 400 million comes into Berkshire every week, which is very comfortable. And we will — we want to get it so that more than 400 million is going out into productive assets, and we succeeded in doing that in the first quarter. So net That we improved our position in the first quarter. Carol?
1: Um, In your 1999 article in Fortune magazine, you stated your belief that after-tax corporate profits were unlikely to hold much above 6% for any sustained period, due not only to competition, but also to public policy. You stated in the article, if corporate investors, in aggregate, are going to eat an ever-growing portion of the economic pie, some other group will have to settle for a smaller portion. That would justifiably raise political problems. Since 2008, after-tax corporate profits have been 8 to 10 percent of GDP. Do you believe that is a permanent shift in the U.S. economy? And of course, we have to think about the, the latest tax bill or will corporate profits revert back to the 4% to 6% of GDP range that was normal in the 20th century?
0: Well, it's been an interesting development during that period. It goes back a little bit before that period, but, but you now have the four largest companies by market value, uh, in the United States, the $30 trillion market, you have four companies that essentially don't need any net tangible assets. Uh, and if you go back many years, I mean, if you looked at the largest companies, Carroll used to put out the Fortune 500 list, and, uh, you know, it would be AT&T or General Motors, and it was companies that, ExxonMobil, it was companies that just required lots of capital in order to produce earnings. So uh, American industry has gotten incredibly more profitable in aggregate in the last 20 or 30 years. You look at the return on the S&P 500, the earnings as a percent of net tangible assets, and the rest is just, you know, if you buy a company that has a million dollars worth of net worth and you pay a billion for it it still only had the million dollars of net worth. I mean, he just paid more for it. So in the, the basic profitability of the company is huge, even though you, you, your investment may be at a significantly higher price. And so that what has happened is that, uh, I think if you look at the earnings on tangible net worth of the S&P 500 and compare it to 20 years ago, it is amazing. And that is really due to the fact that this has become somewhat, you could call it an asset light, economy and uh you know those four companies that earn 10% of of the of the uh, uh they comprise close to 10% of the the market value of the entire uh publicly traded corporate america they don't and they don't take any money basically and that that is a changing world and and uh they will earn even more money with the uh, tax rate going down and and i don't think people have quite processed all that information in in terms of what has gone on in in the market you don't you know carnegie built a steel mill and then he paid it off early they borrowed a little money and then he built another steel mill and all of that sort of thing but it was enormously capital intensive and uh, one industry after another, AT&T was enormously capital intensive, uh, and now the money is in the asset light. I mean, huge money is in the not only asset light business, but the the negative asset. You know, IBM uh, even you know it has no tangible. There's a net minus tangible net worth. There's nothing wrong with that. It's terrific, but. Uh, it is it is not the world we lived in uh 30 years ago and uh, in that sense i didn't see that coming in 1999 when i wrote whatever i wrote there it hasn't changed the profitability of the asset heavy companies particularly i mean it isn't like oil if you take the five most capital intensive industries in the 90s i don't think you'll find that they're their earnings on tangible assets have increased a lot but you will find that this group has moved in that that really doesn't they don't need any they don't need any net tangible assets uh, at all or they need very minor amounts charlie
3: there's also a lot of financial engineering that's raised leverage even in the capital intense businesses and you know while warren may have predicted a little wrong when he wrote that very scholarly article he didn't invest wrong. <laughs> and so it just shows it's hard to make these economic predictions.
0: OK, Jonathan. You we weren't very right on that one, Warren. Yeah, actually, the, the performance of the stock market since then has been pretty accurate. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> and that's true. Yeah. Being right for the wrong
10: reason or something. <laughs> or wrong for the right reason. Anyway, Jonathan. <laughs> Berkshire received a $10.2 billion retroactive premium from AIG early last year. If the upper wa- upperly revised estimate of $18.2 billion of ultimate claims proves to be correct, will the cost of float, adjusted for favorable tax attributes, likely be lower or higher than what Berkshire would have paid to borrow $10 billion for a similar duration?
0: Well, we certainly go
10: in with the idea that it will be—the
0: cost will be lower. and. It's an interesting situation. We, essentially AIG, which is one of the largest property casualty, particularly commercial property casualty companies in the world, uh, said we want to give you all of the losses that we incurred in a very big percentage of our domestic business before December 31st of 2000. 15 and we will pay the first 25 billion and then after we pay 25 billion AIG pays 25 billion then you pay 80% of the next 25 billion so the and they gave us 10 billion dollars for doing that and that's if we are correct about our estimates of how much money will be paid and when it will be ma- paid uh we should come out being better off than if we had borrowed a similar amount. Uh, We have a history of doing 10 or so, maybe 12, big deals like that. Uh, We hold the record. We did it for Lloyds of London 10 or more years ago, and we did it now with AIG. sometimes we've been on the low side in our estimate and sometimes we've been on the high side so far aig just said that they i think they paid 15 and a fraction billion on these pre-1231 2015 losses they paid 15 and a fraction billion but the payment tend to trickle down over years as you get further away from when the losses occurred so i would say that we still feel okay about it and uh, uh we'll be wrong one way or the other everybody is when you estimate losses that may not get settled for 20 or 30 years uh but so far on the group as a whole of these deals we've done we've been okay and I think on the AIG thing we think we'll be okay and I think AIG thinks we'll be okay I mean they entered into it for good reasons of their own so it 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 looks okay sorry to get into this technical stuff but But Jonathan always asks me questions like that, so I have to be ready to, I I want to answer them. Okay, station five.
5: Good afternoon. My name's Adam Bergman with Sterling Capital in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm here with my daughter Michelle from Cape Henry Collegiate in Virginia Beach. Hi Warren, hi Charlie. Our question for you is how you go about attempting to forecast the degree of future success of one specific product in a good business versus another, such that you invest in American Express and Coca-Cola rather than Diners Club or RC Cola, for example. Thanks.
0: Well, with American Express. (laughs) it was it was an interesting situation because diners club got there first i think american express in a certain sense i mean they did it for a lot of reasons but they went into the credit card business uh uh because they were worried about what was going to happen to traveler's checks uh and although traveler's checks are still exist in a significant way but the interesting thing when American Express went into competition with Diners Club, and with Carte Blanche, as I remember, that was also existed at the time, was that instead of charging less than Diners Club and going in, figuring they were going against the established guy and they'd come in at a lower price, they went in at a higher price, as I remember. And the American Express Centurion was on that card. I've got one that I got in 1964, but they were in it before that. It, uh, it, it had more value in time. I mean, it, it, it got better representation. And frankly, if you were a salesperson out with somebody and you could pull out that American Express card with that Centurion, you look like it were J.P. Morgan. And if you pull out the Diners Club, it had a whole bunch of flashy signals, and you looked like a guy that was kiting his checks from one month to the next. And a fellow, a fellow named Ralph Schneider, and Ralph Schneider and Al Bloomingdale developed the diners Club, and they were very smart about getting there first, but they weren't smart about how they merchandised it subsequently. Uh, uh, R.C. Cola, you know, it uh, it, it did there all kinds of Colos that came after Coke. I mean, you know, you, you go back to 1886 and come up with something at Jacobs Pharmacy that's incredibly successful, you know, fairly soon, you're going to get lots of imitators. but. Coke really is the real thing. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you offer me RC Cola and say I'll give it to you at half the price of Coca-Cola and in terms of drinking it. I mean, this, this is a product that's six and a, six and a half ounces, sold for a nickel in 1900, you know? And now if you buy it on the weekend and buy it in large quantities, and everything, you're not paying that much more. This newspaper was three cents. In 1942, the, the the amount of enjoyment per per real, in terms of the real uh, of what you pay for this, has gone dramatically down in inflation-adjusted money. So it's it is a bargain product. Uh, you, know, you you have to look at seize candy. You know, if you live in California and you were. You were a teenage boy and you went to your girlfriend's house and you gave the box of candy to her or to her mother or father and she kissed you, you know, you lose price sensitivity at that point. That's, <laughs> um, uh, So we really want products where people feel like kissing you, you know, <laughs> rather than slapping you. It's, it's, um, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you know, in effect, we're, we're betting on the ecosystem of, of Apple products, but led by the iPhone, and, and I see characteristics in that that make me think that, that it's extraordinary. But I may be wrong. And you know, so far, we've been, I would say we've been right on American Express and, and Coca-Cola. American Express had this huge salad oil scandal in 1960 happened in 63 November, right around the time Kennedy was shot, and uh, uh, there was really worry about what the company would survive, but nobody quit using the, the car, nobody quit using the traveler's checks, and they charged a premium price for their traveler's checks. So there are things you can see around consumer products that sometimes can give you a pretty good insight into the future, and then sometimes we make mistakes. Charlie
3: i got nothing to add, except that if we'd been offered a chance of to go into Coca-Cola right after it was invented, we probably would have said no. We'd have turned to them. Yeah.
0: It would have looked kind of silly to us. Well, unless we drank it now, Charlie. Listen. <laughs> no, he's right. I mean, we don't we don't foresee things that we haven't got a lot of evidence in on. I mean, we — No. We, we — we, we, we want to see a lot of, if we're talking about a consumer product, we want to see how a consumer product behaves under a lot of different circumstances. And then uh, we want to use something, actually, there was a book by Phil Fisher written around 1960 called Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. It's one of the great books on investing. And uh, uh, it talks about the scuttlebutt method of investing, which was quite a ways from what Ben Graham taught me in terms of figures. But it's a very, very good book, and you can learn a lot, you know, just by by going out and using some shoe leather. Now they they call them channel checks now, or something like that. But it's uh, you can get a feel for some products, and then there are others you can't. And then sometimes you're wrong. But but it is it is a good technique. Uh, it's an important investing technique. I would say that. And and Ted and Todd do a lot of that, uh, and they have people, some people that help them out on doing it, too. Charlie's done it with Costco. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's he is, I mean, all the time, he is finding new virtues in Costco, you know? And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and he's right, incidentally. I mean, Costco has an enormous appeal to its constituency, it, uh, you know, they, they delight they surprise and delight their customers, and there is nothing like that in business. You have delighted customers, you're a long way home. Okay, Becky. Uh,
4: this comes from John Hegarty at Brightstar Capital Partners, who writes, Warren, you're stepping down from the Kraft Heinz board at a time when the company is looking to do a large acquisition, Unilever, for example. Do you fundamentally disagree with the combative nature of hostile bids, activist investing, and competitive proxy contests?
0: Well, we will not make hostile tenders ourselves. I do not believe that there, there's anything fundamentally wrong with the idea. I mean, if you take the Fortune 500 companies, I'm sure that all 500 are not managed by the best, or in some cases, even the friendliest to investor. Or anything managements in the world so I, I don't think I don't think it's evil or anything to uh, conduct a hus- hostile offer for a company it's just we won't do it and and uh, we don't want to get into that we we like we like being liked by the managements that we join because we're counting on them to run the company and we're not bringing in a whole bunch of people that know how to how to Ch- change businesses. Uh, the uh, uh, we seldom take a position uh, opposite to management uh, very seldom on on anything involving a proxy but, uh, uh, contest of sorts. But we, we don't rule it out. We don't think every management is entitled to be uh, you know that they don't they don't have a lifetime hold on their business but it's not our style at all to to uh well we won't do it in terms of initiating it ourselves and we'd be very 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 unlikely to support the contest but we have we have voted against a, a couple of propositions over 50 years that that management's have had uh uh, made in relation to stock options. We withheld a vote at Coca-Cola a few years ago uh, to express our opinion. Uh, but uh, we don't think it's evil for the shareholders. Uh, so in some cases, they have different different opinions about who should run the company or whether compensation is appropriate or, or matters of that sort. They, the stockholders still own the company. Charlie?
3: I've got nothing to add to that. I don't envy these people that are in these unfriendly uproars all the time. Imagine doing that after you're already rich. It's insane.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we are definitely not looking for it. But we don't uh, — there are — there are certainly companies that uh, deserve challenge. I mean, and, and they propose things that deserve challenge occasionally. But again, it's not, it's not our, our main activity. And incidentally, this has, uh, the question was asked in reference to Kraft Heinz. The, the people of 3G are great, great managers. They've been wonderful partners. I had made a determination before we got involved there. I was going to be on no more public boards. I'd been on 19 of them, and, and it takes a lot of time and they asked me if I'd go on for a while and I did but it really is like seven and a half days or something and if you're on a, a bank board it may be quite a bit more than that i mean they're, they're 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 just being on a public board usually means quarterly meetings plus maybe an extra one and and uh, you know it, at 87 I, I think I've now learned what I've learned what happens and it's fine, but I don't wanna spend seven and a half days a year when I maybe I can call up people that I trust and admire who are on the board and in five minutes, you know, we find out what's going on or whatever it may be, any questions that come up. And so we are their partners and delighted to be their partners. Uh and now we have two people on the board of Cry of Tines, and they can do the traveling, and I can stay home. Charlie, how many public? You're on Costco, of course, but over the, your lifetime, how many public boards?
3: Well, I, I Costco, except for Kansas
0: something like the Daily
3: it? Journal, where I own part of it. Costco is the only public board. Uh,
0: you were on. Kansas there wasn't football, Berkshire
3: right? or something yeah. I own personally. Yeah. yeah. I was on Kansas City Power and Light. Boy, that goes way back. But, but basically, it has it hasn't happened. I don't envy people who float around to a lot of different board
0: meetings. No, generally speaking, you have very little influence and spend a lot of time. And yeah. the and the trouble is, if you're going to a board meeting, particularly if they get to be international, and sometimes they feel they have to have one that's international. You know they feel they have to take up a fair amount of your time or it wouldn't have been worth coming, you know, thousands of miles for. It. So you get a lot of the show and tell stuff and that that I I find my mind drifting. Okay.
5: <laughs> Gary. Yes, you've said that you are looking for non-insurance large acquisitions to put that cash to work and when you've said that I've usually thought of the United States because you're a big fan of the US business. And I just was wondering whether you're seeing more opportunities as the rest of the world opens up, grows, whether there's opportunities for some of those mega transactions in other parts of the world, say Asia or Europe.
0: Yeah, Gary, I would say that uh, I've been disappointed in that because uh, we do see some outside the United States. And thank heavens we saw the one we saw in Israel some years ago when when Eitan wrote me a letter, but—and, you know, we bought a business which is a very important part of Berkshire now, but we are still not—they're certainly aware of Berkshire Hathaway outside the United States, but they don't sort of pick up the phone automatically. In the United States, I think any large, particularly private company that thinks—is thinking about doing something, they at least think about Berkshire, and, uh, but that, uh, in Europe or Asia, that we are not embedded in the minds the same way. They, they know about us, they know we got a lot of money, and they know we like to buy things, but, but we have really, we're on the radar screen big time in the United States, and we're not as, we're not as, we don't, the immediate desire to be sure that they've thought about the Berkshire option does not occur the same way outside the United States. And we've tried to encourage it a few ways, but I would say that the results have not been been great at all. And, uh, uh, but I hope tomorrow, you know, I get a call from Germany or Britain or Italy or you name it, and Australia, England, wherever it may be, and I hope I get a call and, and, uh, and we get an opportunity to do it. We're, there's a good many countries we'd be, quite happy to put substantial money into it and like i say our experience in israel has been just terrific charlie
1: yeah
3: but the, the corporate acquisition game now is so driven by the by the leverage buyout and the so-called what do they call them strategic yes strategic uh, I, t- I usually translate that into barnyard language and <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're so there's so much craziness in price from our viewpoint. Of course, it's very hard for us to do it. The people in the leveraged buyout game who love massive leverage and don't mind high prices, even they are getting nosebleeds. It's hard, and it's not an environment that means that it allows Berkshire just to go out and buy a whole lot of companies. We we have we ever made a strategic we deal? Have, we, we have to wait
0: have we made a strategic deal that you can remember hmm? have we ever made a deal that we would have regarded as strategic
3: we've never had a strategic plan unless you've hidden it from me
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay that answers that station six
6: <laughs> hi i'm brady ritchie from st louis missouri shareholder since 1996. terrific Warren, you and Charlie have been critical of business schools in the past and what they teach. With respect to value investing and super investors of Graham and Doddsville, you featured the returns of many great investors with different backgrounds, work, and education, with the lesson being following the philosophy is the key. To be successful today, does it still just fall back to chapter eight of the intelligent investor and what do you think of programs and designations such as CFA, CFP, etc., which purport high standards, yet rooted heavily into academia? And I'd like to challenge you to a round of bridge tomorrow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was the last part?
3: <laughs> you, well, you, you start, what do we think about? Yeah, business, and all that. business yeah. schools and all that. Business
0: schools and all that. I didn't catch the last one.
3: They're better. Oh, he's
0: challenging me to a rick round the bridge. Okay, the uh, <laughs> I went to three business schools, and at each, uh, I found a teacher or two. I went to one specifically to get a, t- a given teacher, but each one of them, I found a teacher or two that I really got a lot out of. Um, the so. We're not anti-business school here at all. We we do think that the priesthood, uh, say thirty years ago, for example, in terms of or forty years ago in terms of efficient market theory, they 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 strayed pretty far in, in, in our view from the reality of investing and. I would rather have a person, if I could hire somebody among the top five graduates of number one, two, or three of the business schools, and my choice was somebody that had — was bright, but had chapter eight of the intelligent investor absolutely — it just was natural to them. They had it in their bones, basically. Um, i I take, I take the person from Chapter 8. It, it, this is not, what we do is not a complicated business. It's got to be a disciplined business, but it, is, it does not require a super high queue or anything of the sort. Uh, and um, there are a few fundamentals that are incredibly important, and you do have to understand accounting. And it helps to get out. And, talk to consumers and start thinking like a consumer in many ways in certain industries and all of that. But it just doesn't require advanced learning. And uh, I, I, I certainly, you know, I didn't want to go to college, so I, I, I don't know whether I would have done better or worse if I'd uh, just quit after high school. Uh, you know and read the books I read and all of that. Uh, I think that if you run into a, a few great teachers and they really change the way you see the world to some degree. you know, you're lucky and you can find them in, you can find them in academia and, and you can find them in ordinary life. And I, I've, I've been extraordinarily lucky in having great teachers. Including Charlie, I mean Charlie's been a wonderful teacher, and you know the any place you can find somebody that that gives you insights into things you didn't understand before maybe makes you a better person than you would have been before. you know you get that's very lucky and you want to make the most of it if you, if you can find it in academia, make the most of it, and if you can find it in the rest of your life, make the most of it.
3: Charlie Well, when you found Ben Graham, he was unconventional. And he was very smart and of course that was very attractive to you and then when you found out it worked and you could make a lot of money with sitting on your ass of course you were an instant convert and 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 so it still appeals to me actually i mean (laughs) but the world changed before he died bill graham i mean i mean ben graham recognized that the exact way he sought undervalued companies wouldn't necessarily work for all times under all conditions. And, and that's certainly the way it worked for us. We gradually morphed into trying to buy the better companies when they were underpriced instead of the lousy companies when they were underpriced. And, and of course, that worked pretty well for us. And, and, but, and Ben Graham, he, he outlived the, the game that he played personally most of the time. He lived to see most of it fade away i mean just to find some company that's selling for one third of its working capital and figure out it could easily be liquidated and distribute three dollars for every dollar of market price lots of luck if you can find those in the present markets and and if you can find them they're so small that berkshire wouldn't find them of any use anyway so we've had to learn a different game and that's a lesson for all the young people in the room if you're going to live a long time you have to keep learning yeah what you formerly knew is never enough. So if you don't learn to constantly revise your earlier conclusions and get better ones why you are — I always use the same metaphor — you're like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking
0: contest. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh. If anybody has suggestions for another metaphor, send them to me. <laughs> Graham, incidentally, one, one point, important point, Graham was not scalable. I mean, you could not do with really big money. Uh, and when I worked for Graham Newman Corp, here he was, the, the dean of all analysts, and, you know, it, he was an intellect above all others around that time. But our, the investment fund was $6 million and the, and the partnership that worked in tandem with with the investment company, also had about six million dollars in it, so we had 12 million bucks. We were, we were working with. Now you can make adjustments for inflation, but everything, but it was, it was just a tiny amount. It wasn't, it wasn't really scalable. And and the the truth is, Graham didn't care because he really wasn't interested in making a lot of money for himself. Uh, so it had no reason to want to find something that could go on and on, and become larger and larger, and and uh, uh, so. The utility of Chapter 8 in terms of looking at stocks as a business is of enormous value. The utility of Chapter 20 about a margin of safety is of enormous value. But that's not complicated stuff.
3: I finally figured out why the teachers of corporate finance often teach a lot of stuff that's wrong. When I had some eye eye troubles very early in life, I consulted a very famous eye doctor and I realized that his place of business was doing a totally obsolete cataract operation they were still cutting with a knife after better procedures had been bed and I said, "Why are you in the great medical school performing absolute obsolete operations?" And he said, "Charlie it's such a wonderful operation to teach.") <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens in corporate finance. They get these formulas, and it's a fine teaching experience. You give them a formula, you present the problem, they use the formula, it's — you get a real feeling of worthwhile activity.
6: Yeah.
3: There's only one trouble, it's all balderdash.
0: <clears throat> yeah, whenever you hear a theory described as elegant, watch out. Right.
7: Okay, Andrew. This question uh we got a couple like this one uh comes from Lauren Taylor Wolf, managing partner at Impactive Capital. Warren, you've recently said that one of the things that makes you optimistic about America is women entering the workforce and the quote doubling of the talent that's effectively employed in that workforce. When it comes to positions of leadership, however, women make up less than 21% of boards of s and 500 companies and an even smaller 5% of the CEOs. What can Berkshire do? And what is berkshire specifically doing as a major investor in many of these large companies to advance gender equality both at the board level and among senior leadership yeah well again
0: you know as i have pointed out in the past one of my sisters is here and i have two sisters that are absolutely as smart as i am and they have better personalities as anybody that knows both of us all of us going to test? And, and they didn't they remotely have the same opportunities I had. And they had this 1942 or, uh, New York Times, and, you know, women could be nurses or teachers or retail clerks or stenographers. And that actually worked enormously to my advantage when I was a kid in Omaha in the 30s because I had way better teachers uh, because they were on That was a job open to women. I didn't have a single male teacher in grammar school, and Charlie didn't when he went to Dundee, I don't think either. And we had this huge talent pool that was being funneled into very few opportunities, and and therefore we got better than we deserved in terms of a market system producing it. Uh, The, uh, you know, I — again, our managers run their companies, uh, but I've probably named before we made this management change uh, I probably named only six or seven CEOs in the last five or six years we don't we don't change that much but but uh, I would say that half of them that I've named have been women which is about what you would what should turn out to be the case in terms of ability now there is a certain pipeline problem but that's that gets cured with time, and you can't use that forever as an excuse. And, uh, you know, I feel very good about the decisions we made for CEOs. I'd prefer all our CEOs to live forever. And one woman almost did that that we hired. Mrs. B lived to be 104. She retired at 103. And that's a lesson to our other managers that if you retire prematurely, you know, no telling. <laughs> No telling what will happen, but it is absolutely true. It it does make me bullish. It makes me bullish on the human race, but it's certainly on our country, because if you look at what happened, you know, before the 19th Amendment and then after the 19th Amendment for a long time uh, and continuing to this day, but it's that, that, that there's been significant improvement and i I do feel more optimistic about the future because i think uh i think there will be more uh selection by merit rather than by you know by gender or by race or by by inheritance Uh, uh i think that if you had a system where all businesses got passed on to the eldest son or something i think it I think that society would make a lot less progress than, than one that's merit-based. Charlie?
3: Well, we did live in a different age. There's an old saying that the past is a very strange country. People behave quite differently there. And it was just totally different. And it was ridiculous that I cannot remember. I had one or two male teachers in my mm. high school, but almost none. and. The world has really changed, and it, within Berkshire, I've never seen any overt discrimination anywhere on the grounds of
0: gender. There probably has been some, though. I mean, okay. it's just, I'm yeah, sure
3: yeah, that we yeah. have our care oh, well, of all the peculiarities yeah. of human nature. Sure, but but it's, it's generally, not, it's everything is always improved. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yep. Yeah. And, and uh, I think it'll keep improving.
0: Okay, Greg.
8: Warren, in this year's annual report, it was noted, much as it is every year, that payments of dividends by the company's insurance subsidiaries are restricted by insurance statutes and other regulations, with Berkshire's insurance operations currently allowed to declare up to $16 billion as ordinary dividends during 2018. My question here is, should we view this annual regulatory threshold for dividends as a benchmark for allowable share repurchases as well? And in the event that Berkshire wanted to buy back more stock than that or pay out even more as dividends, would there be an issue with you using capital from operations that aren't held by the insurance operations to return additional capital? With the side question here being, would the annual cash distribution from BNSF, which is held on national indemnities books, be excluded?
0: Yeah, the- we will obviously follow the rules of the states and which were domiciled and well, all the rules of course but but basically it's the state of domestication uh, in the insurance companies and, and they do restrict the amount of dividends in any given year although you could if you wanted to uh, request uh, some additional amount but we don't we don't ever consider that and Uh, But repurchases, uh, if repurchases were really attractive, we would do it in a very big way. And, you know, I wouldn't rule — there's all kinds of ways that we could arrange things to do either a very large acquisition, which is what I would — or a very large repurchase, which I don't think is probably in the cards. Uh, um, just because of the way our stock trades, not because we wouldn't like it, it at a large discount. So Charlie and I, uh, we've got the appetite, and we would have. We've got a lot of cash, but we could we could have a lot more cash. We 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 could make any deal of even one of a very large size. We could make anything that came along. Uh, we could we could work out how to get it done we would we would have we're not going to be doing this but we would have partners who would come in and give us a preferential uh part of a partnership uh, uh, that's way that's not like that's not going to happen in all probably. but there's a lot of things that we could do so don't don't rule out anything based on on statutory limitations of distributions from insurance companies and that
3: restri- we could get special permissions to
0: oh we can get declare
3: bigger dividends. we are not you should not assume that we're constrained by the laws of nature to the amount that we can take out under the statutes
12: now
0: okay station 7
12: hi warren charlie thank you for everything I'm David from Gingo Global, an investment manager in Shanghai. I've been here for eight years. If investment is a sport in the Olympics, you are our champion team. So my question is, facing the fast-growing machine intelligence, how do you see the new competition impact the capital allocation productivity in the future? For Charlie, what is the first principle of capital allocation from general economic interest points of view? Thank you.
3: Well, two questions, machine intelligence. I'm afraid the only intelligence I have is, presi- is being provided by something that's not a machine, and I don't think I'm going to learn machine intelligence. Yeah, if you ask me how to beat the game of Go, with my own intelligence I couldn't do it and I think it's too old for me to learn computer science generally I'm I think that the machine intelligence has worked after all the machine now can be the best human player of go but I think there's more hype in that field than there is probable achievement yeah, so I I don't think the world is going to be changed that much by by machine intelligence some but not not hugely and what was the other question well one was machine intelligence I think he was
0: getting a capital allocation oh yeah yeah
3: that's such a general question generally speaking we're always trying to get the best to get something that's worth buying and the human mind rejects that if you're in academia because you could come in and make one declaratory sentence at the opening of the semester and you wouldn't have anything to do for the rest of the of your time so people want to find some formula it's what i call physics envy these people want the world to be like physics but the world isn't like physics outside of physics and that false precision just does nothing but get you in trouble so i would I would say you've got to master the general ideas, and you've got to work to improve your judgment, slowly the way all the rest of us had. And I, I don't think most individuals have much hope of individual gain from machine intelligence.
0: Now I don't. I'm impressed when machines be goal or something of the sort, or even win the chess or whatever it may be, I don't really think they bring much to the table in terms of capital allocation or investing. And then I may be missing something entirely, you know, maybe I'm just blind to what's out there.
3: You're missing a lot of very remunerative fee-earning twaddle. Yeah,
0: well. <laughs> <laughs> well, that takes care of that, so we'll go on to Station 8.
12: <laughs> Dear Mr. Buffett and Mr. Monger, thank you very much for hosting the meeting. It's truly been remarkable. Thank you. Uh, my name is Yan, and I'm a partner at Tiger Brokers, a leading electronic brokerage firm from China. Uh, let me uh, let me rephrase that. So, uh, I and my colleagues flew half away from the globe with. Uh, IT and FanTalks to be here, and it's honored honor, just like everyone else in the stadium, we're honored to be here. My question is, uh, you mentioned earlier that investors don't really have to be struggling in picking the right stocks. They would do well in picking probably the right market or the right country. China is the second largest economy, and property has the biggest growth potential. Just by passively weighting a portfolio, by passively evaluating a portfolio, U.S. investors are significantly underweight in China. So in your opinion, what are stopping the investors from investing in China? Thank you. Well, I think the answer is
3: that you're absolutely right, that we are, American investors, are missing China. And they're missing it because it's a long way away it looks different they're not used to it it's complicated the headlines confuse them in other words it it just looks too hard sitting in omaha to to outsmart the chinese market but i think you're absolutely right it's where they should be looking
0: okay We've actually had a couple of investments in China. We actually we we've, we've done pretty well, but uh, there were, you know, the, the, well, if you go back a number of years, one of the, uh in terms of getting a lot of money into something, you know, many billions, and we have to get billions into things to to move any kind of a needle. That that can be tougher in in markets that. Uh, you've got, you're unfamiliar working in, and it's, it's difficult under any circumstances, but but accumulating a, a six or eight or ten billion dollar position in in investments outside the United States can be very difficult. For example, in the UK and much of Europe, we have to report when we own 3% of a company. In fact, we can be asked to report if we even have less than 3% that really gets very tough when we get a bunch of followers and a lot of publicity that probably isn't deserved in terms of what we're doing in the markets and everything so it uh some of the problems are just by the nature of our size it would be a lot it'd be a lot easier for running smaller fund PetroChina, we managed to get a very big position but the government owned 90 percent of it so we bought 14 percent of what the government didn't own but it was still only 1.4 percent of the company uh, uh, but charlie charlie actually keeps pushing me to do more in china and we've tried a couple of times actually and uh, there was there was one operation that we got involved in well
3: you did so poorly the first time you put in 200,000 and got about two billions so yeah mm-hmm. yeah no it wasn't encouraging enough
0: Okay, station nine.
13: (laughs) Uh, My name is uh, Dr. Sherman Silver, I'm an infertility doctor from St. Louis, and uh, I have been a a shareholder in coming to this meeting for 23 years, and I want to thank you very much for making my grandchildren very rich. (laughs) And they sometimes compare me in the medical world, uh, infertility uh, world, as the uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway of infertility, because I'm so old and I come from a relatively small community. But uh, I'm wondering about your interest in not just Apple, but all of the tech stocks like Amazon and Google, because you've avoided them, you've stated in the past, because they're complicated, you should stick with something you understand. On the other hand, Amazon and Google have what you call a very durable competitive advantage. They really hardly have any competitor, and that's true in China too, of Alibaba and Tencent. so it seems like it's a conflict, and I'm wondering if you're going to be turning the corner and going into these tech companies that seem to have no serious competition.
0: Well, we certainly looked at them, and we we, we don't think of whether we should be in tech companies or not, or that sort of thing, we we are looking for things where we we do get into the durability of the competitive advantage, and whether we think that our opinion might be better than other people's opinion in assessing the probability of the durability, so to speak. Uh, but the truth is that uh, I've watched Amazon from the start, and I, I think what Jeff Bezos has is done is something close to a miracle and and the problem is if i think something will be a miracle i tend not to bet on it uh, the uh, uh it would have been better far better obviously if we if i had some insights into certain businesses but you know in fact bill told me early on bill gates told me early on you know that that I think I was on all of this, and they suggested I turn to Google. But the trouble is, I I saw that Google was was uh, was skipping past all of this, and then I wondered if anybody could skip past Google. So, and I saw at Geico that we were paying a lot of money for something that cost them nothing incrementally. So we've looked at it, and you know i made a mistake in 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 not being able to come to a conclusion where I really felt that that at the present prices that that the prospects were far better than the prices indicated. And uh uh I didn't go into Apple because it was a tech stock in the least. I mean that I, I went into Apple because I made certain came to certain conclusions about about both the intelligence was with, with the capital would be employed, but more important about the value of an ecosystem and how permanent that ecosystem could be, and what the threats were to it, and a whole bunch of things, and uh, that didn't—I don't think that required me to, you know, take apart an iPhone or something and figure out what all the components were or anything. It—it it, it was more—it's much more the nature of consumer behavior, and some things uh, strike me as having a lot more permanence than others. But the answer is, we'll miss a lot of things that, or I'll miss a lot of things that that I don't feel I understand well enough, and there's there there is no penalty in investing if you don't swing a, a ball that's in the strike zone, as long as you swing at something at some point, and you know eventually that you find the pitch pitches you like, and that's the way we'll continue to do it. We'll try to stay within our circle of competence, and and. Uh, Charlie and I generally agree on on uh, sort of where that circle ends and uh, what, what kind of situations where we might have some kind of an edge in our reasoning or our experience or something that uh, where we might evaluate something differently than other people. But the answer is uh, we're going to miss a lot of things. Charlie?
3: Yeah, we have a wonderful system. If one of us is stupid in some area, so is the other. <laughs> and, of course, we were not ideally located to be high-tech wizards. You know, uh, how many people of our age quickly mastered Google? I've been to Google headquarters. They look to me like they're—it looks like a
0: kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> a very rich kindergarten so <laughs> <Yes. laughs> no, it's, it's it's impressive what they've done and uh, like I say at the EICO we were paying them a lot of money uh, at the time they went public and 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 all three of them, the main characters, Eric Vria and, and sergei uh, they actually came and saw me but they were more and talking about going public and the mechanics of it and various things along that line but it wasn't like what they were doing was a mystery to me the mystery was how much competition would come along and how effective they would be uh and whether it would be a game where four or five people were slugging it out without making as much money as they could have one company dominated those are those are tough decisions to make you can have industries where there's only two people in it and they are stolen very very good because they beat each other's brains out and that's one of the questions in the airline business it's is a better business now than it used to be but, but it used to be suicide so uh and you know that the competitive invlo- competitive factors are are extraordinary in in airlines and how much better business is it with with uh more people operating at 85% capacity than it was it with seven or eight operating in the mid-70s and with more planes around. Those are tough decisions. But uh I made the wrong decision on on Google and Amazon. I just I really consider that a miracle that you could be doing Amazon web services and and changing retail at the same time uh, with relative you know, without enormous amounts of capital, and do it with the speed and effectiveness of what Amazon has done. I just, I would, I underestimated. uh, I had a very, very, very high opinion of Jeff's ability when I first met him, and I underestimated him. Charlie?
3: Well, my comment would be that the shareholders have one thing to be thankful for some of the age-related stupidity at headquarters has been ameliorated by ted and todd joining us we are looking at the world with the aid of some younger eyes now and they've had a contribution significant beyond their own investments and so you're you're very lucky to have them you because there's a lot of ignorance in the older generation that needs removal
0: OK, station 10.
2: Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Warren. Good afternoon, Charlie. And my name is Yu Jing. I come from China, and I work for Hentian Fu family office. And we are serving high-worth individual clients in China. And you two will be my dream customer. Um, I know you. your shareholder, Bill Gates, has a family office, which uh, helping his wealthy. So my question is, do you have a family office? And uh, what can can we know what they do, some, anything for you? And if not, are you planning to have a family office in the
3: future? We already and, uh, have a family office. office. It's your sitting home. right here.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we would be the last guys in the world to have a family office, actually. <laughs> But there are a lot of them around, and, 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 but it's, uh, it's not something that, that fit the Munger family or the Wuppet family. <laughs> Charlie, you have anything? Oh, it, no, okay. We, let's, we'll do one more.
7: Station 11. Hi, Warren. Charlie. My name is Adam Mead, Mead Capital Management from Derry, New Hampshire. In the past, you have touched on certain compensation arrangements with key executives. Could you please provide some specific examples of compensation arrangements within Berkshire that speak to incentivizing good behavior while not penalizing the manager for size or the relative ease or difficulty of the business or industry? Thank you.
0: Well, that is a very, very good question and a very, very tough question, because Some of our He
3: really doesn't want to answer. Well some
0: of our managers <laughs> no some of our some of our managers are in businesses that are just much easier. I mean we we've bought into a variety of businesses. People are obviously influenced by what pay arrangements are elsewhere. It wouldn't be human if if they weren't and uh, trying to trying to come to the right answer. When you have different degrees of capital intensity different degree very different degrees of of basic profitability uh and how much you scale up based on size because there is an incentive incentive to grow businesses usually if businesses get much larger everybody from the ceo down expects to earn more money for something that we where they really bring the same amount of amount of intensity and work and ability to it, it is really a tough question. I think that that uh, uh, if you engage compensation consultants at public companies, which they all do, they're going to they're going to recommend things that cause them to have CEOs recommend them to other companies. Uh, it's just you're working against human nature uh, uh, when you have an arrangement like that. I would say that we have obviously kept a very, very, very high percentage of the managers that we hope to have stay with us, in fact, just about 100 uh, percent. And I think people do like, they do like to make their own decisions. They do like recognition you know they they most people respond they they like doing a good job and they like they like the fact that we understand it and compensation is part of that but it's not the whole thing uh and uh i wish i could give you some precise formulas but
3: there I, aren't any. really don't warren But we it's an advantage at berkshire to keep our individual deals private there would be no advantage to just publishing them all no we're not going to do that no of course not so we, what we're saying he, he makes all those decisions personally he's got every formula in the book and he keeps them all private that's our system
0: well we we, we do <laughs> we publish what the directors are paid we publish what we have to <laughs> yeah okay it's it's 3 30 now we're going to reconvene at 3:45. Charlie and I we love the fact that our partners basically turn out for this, so we we thank you for coming. I hope you've had a good time both at the meeting and in Omaha, and we look forward to seeing you again next year. Thanks. We're going to move it right along. There's a little gun jumping here. So, if you please take your seat. Thank you. This is the formal meeting. So the. The meeting will now come to order. I am Warren Buffett, Chairman of the Board of Directors of the company, and I welcome you to this 2018 Annual Meeting of Shareholders. This morning, I introduce the Berkshire Hathaway directors that are present, and also with us today are partners in the firm of Deloitte & Touche, our auditors. Jennifer Donis is Assistant Secretary of Berkshire Hathaway. She will make a written record of the proceedings. Becky Amick has been appointed inspector of elections at this meeting, and she will certify to the count of votes cast in the election for directors and the motion to be voted upon at the meeting. The named proxy holders for this meeting are Walter Scott and Mark Hamburg. Does the Assistant Secretary have a report of the number of Berkshire shares outstanding entitled to vote and represented at the meeting? We're building the suspense here.
14: Yes, I do. As indicated in the proxy statement that accompanied the notice of this meeting that was sent to all shareholders of record on March 7th, 2018, the record date for this meeting. There were 748,347 shares of Class A Berkshire Hathaway Common Stock Outstanding, with each share entitled to one vote on motions considered at the meeting, and 1,344,969,701 shares of Class B Berkshire Hathaway Common Stock Outstanding, entitled to one ten-thousandth of one vote on motions considered at the meeting. Of that number, 537,524 Class A shares and 823,145,874 Class B shares are represented at this meeting by proxies returned through Thursday evening, May 3rd.
0: Thank you. That number represents a quorum, and we will therefore directly proceed with the meeting. First order of business will be a reading of the minutes of the last meeting of shareholders. I recognize Mr. Walter Scott, who will place a motion before the meeting. I move that the reading of the minutes of the last meeting of shareholders be dispensed with and the minutes be approved. Do I hear a second? I second the motion. The motion has been moved and seconded. We will vote on this motion by voice vote. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? The motion is carried. The next item of business is to elect directors. If a shareholder is present who did not send in a proxy or wishes to withdraw a proxy previously sent in, you may vote in person on the election of directors and other matters to be considered at this meeting. Please identify yourself to one of the uh, meeting officials in the aisles so that you can receive a ballot. I recognize Mr. Walter Scott to place a motion before the meeting with respect to the election of directors. I move to Warren Buffett, Charles Munger. Greg Abel, Howard Buffett, Stephen Burke, Susan Decker, William Gates, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Ajit Jain, Thomas Murphy, Ron Olson, Walter Scott, and Merle Whitmer be elected as directors. Is there second? I second the motion. It has been moved and seconded that Warren Buffett, Charles Munker, Gregory Abel, Howard Buffett, Stephen Burke, Susan Decker, <clears throat> William Gates, David Gottesman, Charlotte Guyman, Ajit Jane, Thomas Murphy, Ronald Olson, Walter Scott, and Merrill Whitmer be elected as directors. Are there any other nominations or any discussion? The nominations are ready to be acted upon. If there are any shareholders voting in person, they should not now mark their ballots on the election of directors and deliver their ballots to one of the meeting officials in the aisles. Ms. Amick, when you are ready, you may give your report.
15: My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening casts not less than 605,906 votes for each nominee. That number exceeds a majority of the number of the total votes of all Class A and Class B shares outstanding. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting.
0: Thank you, Ms. Amick. Warren Buffett, Charles Munger, Greg Abel, Howard Buffett, Steve Burke, Susan Decker, William Gates, David Gottesman, Charlotte Diamond, Ajit Jane, Thomas Murphy, Ronald Wilson, Walter Scott, and Merrill Whitner have been elected as directors. The next item of business is a motion put forth by Frida Cathcart on behalf of shareholder Marcia Sage. The motion is set forth in the proxy statement. The motion requests that the company provide a report reviewing the company's policies, actions, plans, and reduction targets related to methane emissions from all operations. The The directors have recommended that the shareholders vote against the proposal. I will now recognize Ms. Cathcart to present the motion. To allow allow all interested shareholders to present their views, I ask that the representative of Baldwin Brothers limit the presentation of the motion to five minutes.
2: Good morning, Chairman (coughs) Buffett, Mr. Munger, members of the Board, and fellow shareholders. I am presenting this proposal on behalf of Baldwin Brothers on the issue of methane asset risk. This is the second year for this methane-focused proposal. Last year, 10 percent of shareholders approved of it. Methane acid risk is a serious financial safety and environmental issue across the entire natural gas supply chain. The failure of a gas injection well at Southern California Gas, Eliso Canyon Storage Facility in Los Angeles revealed major vulnerabilities in the maintenance and safety of natural gas facilities. In that situation, cleanup and containment costs have soared to close to $1 billion. Governor Jerry Brown of California has threatened to shut down the facility. Berkshire Hathaway owns the largest interstate natural gas pipeline system in the the United States. It has natural gas storage, distribution, and transportation facilities that may face similar safety risks through the Northern Natural Gas Company, Kern River Gas, and Mid-American Energy Corporations. On an environmental front, research indicates methane leaks could erase the climate benefits of reducing coal use to meet internationally agreed upon climate change targets. Methane emissions have an impact on global temperature of roughly 84 times that of CO2 over a 20-year period. (coughs) Berkshire is a voluntary member of the EPA's Methane Challenge and One Future Emissions Intensity Commitment Framework, and should be applauded for reducing its leakage rates to below the 1% target along its value chain. Since this framework is a cost-effective versus prescriptive approach, shareholders would like to understand if this cost-effective approach employed at Berkshire is sufficient maintenance and enhanced disclosure should help mitigate the potential for these financial and regulatory risks. In closing, we think it prudent that Berkshire Hathaway issue a report reviewing and disclosing the company's specific best practices, policies, and safety standards for methane assets and required upgrade costs to facilities to mitigate potential business risks. The report would make it easier for investors, customers, and regulators to understand Berkshire's overall approach to managing methane emissions and risks. Thank you for your consideration.
0: Um, Ms. Kavikart, could you help me out? Are there some other people there to speak? I can't quite see from here.
5: No, there are no other shareholders who wish to speak on this issue.
2: There, there's nobody behind me to speak.
0: Did you get that, No. The, uh, Greg, could we put up slide one and then if somebody will give Greg a uh, microphone? I'd, be helpful. Uh, he could elaborate some on this chart and, okay. and what else we're doing.
16: Thanks, uh, Thanks, Warren, and uh, appreciate the comments there. What we've uh, prepared here is in response to the proposal. It demonstrates the One Future Initiative goal, as it was highlighted. They'd like to see our pipelines operating by 2025 at a 1 percent throughput or, or loss of throughput at 1 percent. I'm happy to report, as the slide shows, that in 2017, our throughput loss was 0.046 percent, 20 times better than the request in 2025. Thank you. It's a great compliment to our operating team, obviously. They take the issue, as it's been highlighted, very seriously. I would also add, as it was noted, we're part of the EPA program, where we've Report on a voluntary basis, our practices are disclosed and reviewed by the EPA, and additionally added on our our website. Accordingly, I, th- I strongly feel we're getting the results in, in disclosing the appropriate information.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and and, and thanks, Greg, and, and Ms. Gaspar. We, we are on the same uh, we're on the same side. You are on this, basically. Uh, we just we just are not we're not looking for ways to conduct more studies and prepare re, uh, reports that may cost us money and generate more reports and all of that. But I I can tell you two things. Uh, this is something that is reported to the board of directors of Berkshire Hathaway Energy uh, quarterly, and I'm on that I'm on that board, and and uh, uh, we believe in the. Achieving the same ends, and we think Berkshire Hathaway Energy is is both both sensitive and effective, sensitive to and effective in in in, in reducing methane emissions. Uh, uh, so, if uh, I think we are now ready, the motion is now ready to be acted upon. If there are any shareholders voting in person, they should now mark their ballots on the motion and deliver their ballot to one of the meeting officials in the aisles. Ms. Zamek, when you're ready, you may give your report.
15: My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening casts 48,040 votes for the motion and 558,640 votes against the motion. As the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of votes of all Class A and Class B shares properly cast on the matter, as well as all votes outstanding, the motion has failed. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting.
0: Thank you, Ms. Amick. The proposal fails. The next item of business is a motion put forth by shareholder Freda Cathcart. The motion is set forth in the proxy statement the motion requests that Berkshire adopt a policy to encourage more Berkshire subsidiary companies to issue, issue annual sustainability reports. Uh, I will now recognize Frida Cathcart to present the motion. And to all interested shareholders to present their views, I ask uh, her to limit her remarks to five minutes. You have the floor, Ms. Cathcart.
2: Thank you so much. It is a privilege to be here and a privilege I can give thanks to my grandfather, James Cathcart, who started out in the mailroom of Gen Re and worked himself up through the company to become the chair of Re. During that time he accumulated a lot of Genri's stock, which he bestowed generously upon his family. And when he did so, he encouraged the members of his family to do good and to pay it forward to do something that would make a difference in the world and in our communities. For my father, he did so by being philanthropic with educational institutions, with the theory that if you give a person a fish, you feed them for a day, but if you teach them to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. My focus has been on the environment, with the thought that When people fish, it would be nice if they were able to eat the fish. I want to take this opportunity to clarify my proposal about the sustainability reports and put the emphasis on the word encourage. It is evident that Berkshire Hathaway's management of allowing the subsidiaries to work um, without getting mandates from you is being very successful. And I wouldn't recommend changing it. You're doing a great job. Please keep it up. Um, But I do think that there's something to be said to encourage them and support them in many ways you already are. There is a high level of interest from investors and the public in corporate social responsibility. One-fifth of investments are based on socially responsible investment strategies. And back in 2012, I found an article by Planet Earth Herald where they wrote, When Warren Buffett talks, people listen. He is now talking about the environment. He believes that companies need to have a triple bottom line, and respecting the environment is absolutely critical to a company's economic performance. In times—this is a direct quote from you, Mr. Buffett. In times such these, a company must invest in the key ingredients of profitability, its people, communities, and the environment. One third of Berkshire Hathaway sub- subsidiaries already have a sustainability presence on the web, um, and one of them is Berkshire Energy, that has the acronym RESPECT, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, which stands for responsibility, efficiency, stewardship, performance, communication, and training. And Berkshire Hathaway provides an annual sustainability summit to help bring the subsidiaries together so they can learn how to be more sustainable, how to share tips, and how to be profitable. And that's excellent. But when I tried to find a web presence about the sustainability summit, I wasn't able to find it. And that's where I think that we can do a better job in Berkshire Hathaway when it comes to communication with our shareholders and with the outside world about the good work that we're doing. A simple solution to that would be to create a link on the Berkshire Hathaway website to sustainability that people could click on and go and find out about initiatives like the Sustainability Summit. And from there, perhaps, they could click on to go to the subsidiaries that have a web presence about sustainability to see what they're doing. And doing so, we give a window to the world where they can see what we're doing to make a difference that might inspire other corporations to follow the example. Or perhaps a college student working on a paper would read about it and think that that is a good business model, that that's something that he wants to bring forward when he goes into his career. There is a Facebook page called Berkshire Hathaway Sustainability that will be available for shareholders in the outside world to look at, to see research, and to encourage each other to learn how we can support sustainability practices, and that is available now. I greatly appreciate this opportunity to speak with you today and to clarify what my proposal is, and I do greatly applaud and appreciate all the work that you're doing on behalf of our corporation and the world. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you. Uh, Many of the managers, a great many of the managers of Berkshire are here and and are listening to you uh uh and I suspect that uh a, a very high percentage of them agree with what you're saying uh whether they what they do in terms of web pages and so on uh in our view is basically up to them. but I can tell you that one leading proponent, as you mentioned uh uh was Greg Abel until recently. Was running Berkshire Hathaway Energy, and now is vice chairman. And Greg may want to say a few words on this too. And, uh, but I can assure you, our managers are listening to you.
16: Thanks, Warren. Yeah, we do uh, everything that was touched on. I'll just maybe add a few points for our for our shareholders. Obviously, sustainability is a priority for Berkshire and each of our operating subsidiaries. It was highlighted that a number of them have sustainability reports. But I would go beyond that. If you go to our various companies' websites, you'll see specific actions they're taking relative to sustainability. So it may not be summarized in a specific report, but that type of information is available. I can also add that when you think of the Berkshire Hathaway Energy uh, Corporation, we're trying to lead by example with support from Warren Charlie, Walter Scott. I'm happy to report if you look at where our energy production is right now at the end of 2017, 50% of our energy that is produced and consumed by our customers comes from renewable energy. That's something we're strongly communicating across the the U.S. and globally, as an example of what can be done in our industry. And I'm happy to report by the end of 2021, 100% of the energy utilized by our customers can be met through renewable energy in Iowa. So I understand uh, the concept of sustainability. We're working across that, across our organizations to share best practices. But as Warren highlighted, it really resides in each of our companies. But be, it will be encouraged, and uh, you'll continue to see great results. Thank you.
0: Thank you. The motion is now ready to be acted upon. If there are any shareholders voting in person, they should now mark their ballot on the motion and deliver their ballot to one of the meeting officials in the aisles. Zamek, when you are ready, you may give your report.
15: My report is ready. The ballot of the proxy holders, in response to proxies that were received through last Thursday evening, cast 67,282 votes for the motion and 544,256 votes against the motion. As the number of votes against the motion exceeds a majority of the number of votes of all Class A and Class B shares properly cast on the matter, as well as all votes outstanding, the motion has failed. The certification required by Delaware law of the precise count of the votes will be given to the Secretary to be placed with the minutes of this meeting.
0: Thank you, Ms. Hamigan. I would say, Ms. Ketchcart, our managers have heard you. I mean, you have you have had an impact, and I appreciate what you've done. Uh, Walter, I guess we're now ready for motion. I move this meeting be adjourned. There a second? I second the motion. A motion to adjourn has been made and seconded. We will vote by voice. Is There any discussion? If not, all. If not, all in favor say aye. aye. All opposed? No. The meeting is adjourned, and thank you again for coming.